Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 129. This week, we're delighted to bring you Professor Anjan Thakur at Washington University in St. Louis. He is a co-author of the 2019 book, The Economics of Higher Purpose, that discusses what I would express as the calling that it seems even secular businesses have to a higher purpose beyond the conventional economics of profit and shareholder value maximization. It's a fascinating read. It actually... uh, a lot more than I expected deals with individual motivations and individual purpose as a bridge to discussing how organizations also have purpose. And I also found the book to be an antidote to the sort of dystopian trends that are described in The Meritocracy Trap, another 2019 book that I've read recently by Yale Law Professor Daniel Markovitz. So The Meritocracy Trap describes how the elites are busy destroying the middle class and replacing large numbers of middle class jobs with small numbers of elite jobs, among many other things. It's also a fascinating read. Um, this book, The Economics of Higher Purpose, is a roadmap to something very, very different. And given the number of concrete examples in it and the, the actual results that have, you know, been you know amassed. It's and and, and, as, and as Dr. Thakor says in the course of the interview, this is of course not completely new, but it's amazing how far away from this professional economics has gotten. So with that, I will let uh, Professor Thakor tell you about the book himself, and hope you enjoy this interview as much as Bill and I did. Welcome back to that. So second millennium, we're very delighted to have Dr. Anjan Thakor here on the podcast. And the, uh, his bio has disappeared from my screen. Give me a second. He's the John E. Simon Professor of Finance, Director of the PhD Program, and Director of the WFA, WFA Center for Finance and Accounting Research in the Olin School of Business at Washington University in St. Louis. He's published research extensively in the top economics and finance journals. He's been named as the fourth most prolific researcher in the world in finance, and over the past 50 years, based on publications in the top seven finance journals over that time. And the point of departure for this podcast is that he's uh, co-authored a book called The Economics of Higher Purpose um, with a colleague from his days at the University of Michigan. And we're delighted, Dr. Thakor, for you to be on the podcast with us. Great to be with you. Thanks. Um, so this is, I, I just actually finished reading the book this morning, and it is really a compelling read. Um, and a more compelling read at an individual level than I guess I was really prepared for. Um, would you be able to sort of uh, describe for the reader or for our listeners um, sort of the genesis and progress of the research that led you to this book? Uh, sure, Paul. So uh, my co-author on this book is uh, Bob Quinn, who's a former colleague of mine from the University of Michigan. Bob's work is an organization behavior. And some years back, he was called by the Mormon church to serve in Australia for three years. And uh, this was quite a surprise to me because 
I never actually thought about Bob leaving for three years and literally disappearing from sight. I had very little contact with Bob during the time that he was in Australia. We exchanged a few emails. So then when he came back and we happened to meet, uh, I was very eager to find out what he'd been doing for the past uh, three years. And so he started telling me and he ended the story by saying, we created an organization of higher purpose. And I looked at him with a blank stare and I said, what does that mean? Well, I mean <laughs> I'm not sure I understand right. how you created an organization of higher purpose. So he explained to me. Uh-huh. And this was sort of a new concept for me. Uh, my background is in uh, finance, strategy, and economics. And so um, I was intrigued and I said, okay, I can see how this would work for a religious organization, but would this work for any organization? You know, can any organization have a sense of higher purpose that transcends its usual business? And he said, honestly, I don't know. Yeah. And so I said, well, then we should do some research on this because what you're telling me defies every principle of economics that I know. This cannot happen. People shouldn't work like this. And you should not be able to achieve these kinds of outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that was really the beginning of a research journey with Bob, where we decided that we would interview uh, close to 40 leaders of different types of organizations, for-profit, not-for-profit, public, private, Mm -hmm. many different industries, to learn more about whether they actually had any sense of higher purpose for their organizations? If so, what was it? What sort of results did they get? And how then did they fit that with what I call the standard view of economic contracting? Standard, or sometimes in the book, I think you call it the conventional view. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, And and, and I have to imagine that as someone in finance, you might, are, are there people who question you and ask, well, what, what's, can you give me some numbers? Can you give me some quantitative backing for this? And, and, and if they do so, what do you answer them? So, you know, early in our research, there wasn't a lot of uh, research support for the proposition that higher purpose would have any particular impact on business. If anything, I think the prediction of the conventional theory would have been that this isn't going to work. So at best, Mm -hmm. it's uh, going to be a placebo, right? Mm -hmm. So so we began to do some research. We did some theoretical research where we basically inserted the sense of higher purpose into a traditional organization, which Mm -hmm. does what we call optimal contracting. And we got some surprising results. And then just around that time, there were a number of people were interested in exploring this in different settings. So we became more aware of their research and we began to gather uh, some of the empirical research that other people had done. So there's a paper that was published in 2019 in Organization Science by three researchers uh, at Wharton and Harvard who basically examined Uh, the impact of higher purpose on economic outcomes. So things like stock price, uh, 
mm-hmm. and profits and Tobin's Q. And over a very large uh, number of organizations, uh, many, many years, and they found pretty compelling empirical, large sample empirical evidence that uh, if you have an authentic higher purpose that's communicated with clarity, then it actually has a very positive impact on all of these traditional measures of profits and and performance. Uh, There's another very striking field study which provides causal evidence that was done by some researchers at the University of Michigan Business School where they, and I I really find this fascinating because of the setting. And the setting was call center workers. Okay, Okay. now if you imagine different kinds of professions, at least for me, that would not be a profession that would be high on the list of professions where I would really be engaged and enthusiastic. Legendarily not so, yeah. Especially given the kinds of reactions you get. Yeah, when you call people, uh, including my own, you know, and how I react. <laughs> Have you tried out. turning it off and turning it back <laughs> on again? Yes. And so what they did is they looked at call center employees who were making calls for fundraising for the school. Okay. Yeah. And they did sort of the you know, the usual gold standard control uh, control sample treatment sample kind of field study where. The treatment sample was basically call center workers who were exposed to the recipients of scholarships mm-hmm. that the school had given as a result of its fundraising. Sure. And these people interacted with the call center workers and exchanged with them their life stories and how the scholarship had impacted their lives. And the control group was, you know, not treated. So they were not yeah. exposed. Just went they on both had the same scripts. You know, these people yeah. have a script that they read from. Yeah. And then they tracked their performance over the next few months. By the way, prior to this treatment, performance was virtually identical across the two groups. Sure. And in research, we call that the parallel trends assumption, right? Yeah. That they're essentially going in the same direction. Yeah. And then after the treatment, you saw that a huge wedge opened up between the treatment group and the control group. And the treatment Mm -hmm. group spent much more time talking to people on the phone, Mm -hmm. and they raised much more money for the school in their fundraising efforts. So the conclusion was that the treatment actually had a causal impact Mm -hmm. on the behavior of these call center employees. So the conclusion from a lot of the research is that uh, what higher purpose in any organization does when it's authentic mm-hmm. is it changes people's mental maps. Your mental mm-hmm. map is how you perceive yourself and yeah. your job, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you can change a person's perception of both themselves and their job and how they relate to the job, mm-hmm. they're going to behave differently. Yeah. 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 But the key word in this is authentic. So it has yeah. to be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Could you describe how you, dis- you use the term authentic? And I think at one point you, you, you uh, assert that it's central to what you're trying to describe in the book and also the terms, hopefully, contract and covenant as well. But let's start with authentic. Sure. So, you know, when we first started our research, I never realized how elusive authenticity would be for so mm-hmm. many organizations, right? Yeah. So the easiest... Yeah. Thing is, when we present our research evidence and and the book and the Harvard Business Review article, 
you know, a lot of organizational leaders get excited because it seems like another incentive mechanism to improve performance. Right. And then we tell them, look, if all you're looking to do is to enhance performance, but you don't believe in the purpose yourself, yeah. it's for its own sake, not because of the impact it's yeah. going to have on performance, but because you think this is something worthwhile and it's in its own right. Okay. Yeah. If you believe that, then, then authenticity really has two dimensions. One is the usual one, right? Fidelity mm-hmm. to the truth. I actually believe in it. It's not just, you know, posters on walls. Right. Uh, that make people cynical, right? Right. Uh, I've seen my share of those in my day as well. Yeah. Exactly. Every organization has those, right? Yeah. And then you talk yeah. to middle managers. How does it impact what you do or decision-making at the top and they roll their eyes? Yes. So, so fidelity to the truth, I really mean it. But there's another dimension, which is also important, which is passion. Mm-hmm. I, as a leader, passionately believe in this purpose. And it comes through in everything that I do, everything mm-hmm. that I say, every decision that I make. And so purpose then becomes the arbiter of every business decision. Yeah. When people see that, then they know I'm being authentic. Mm-hmm. And so I always tell CEOs and organization leaders, you know, you may be able to, you know, fool me if I interact with you for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. But the safest assumption you can make is that everybody in your organization is at least as smart as you are. <laughs> right? And so if you're not practicing this authentically, they'll yeah. see through it because they're, yeah. they're in the weeds. They yeah. see every decision that you're making. Yeah. Every resource allocation decision that's being made, yeah. every call that's being made by senior management. And if they see that these decisions uh, are not driven by that purpose, that purpose is not the arbiter of every business uh, decision mm-hmm. you make, then don't even go there because you might actually do more, more harm than good. Right. And so, you know, that passion is really important. And, and, and that's, that's what I mean by authenticity. Yeah. Now, if you have an authentic higher purpose that's communicated clearly, mm-hmm. right down the organization, mm-hmm. then what it does is it creates what Rabbi Sachs, as a British lord uh, mm-hmm. and also a Jewish rabbi, mm-hmm. what he once called in a speech he gave in Washington, D.C., uh, the notion of covenants instead of contracts. Yeah. So in economics, we deal with optimal contracts. Okay? Yeah. I work for you, we drop a contract, you say I'll pay you this much in fixed wage, and I'll Mm -hmm. pay you this much based on the output, that's called a bonus, okay? That's a contract. And what Rabbi Sachs talked about was a covenant, which is something that transcends contracts, where we do something because it is driven by this common higher purpose. And I don't need a contract to get me to act in that way. It's because we both sign on to that purpose. Right. And so he gave this wonderful example that uh, he said Israel had a society before they had a state. Mm-hmm. And he said, for a society, you need covenants. For a state, you need contracts. Right. Because contracts right. are laws, right? Yeah. That govern a state. And you have to have laws. You cannot have a lawless society. I mean, a lawless state, but at the same time, contracts do not suffice to create a society. 
Society right. also needs covenants. Right. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true in organizations. Uh, you can function with contracts. You excel with covenants. Right. Yeah. You can get by with, I mean, in a sense, perhaps you can abstract a covenant from the larger society, but it's going to be a pretty tepid, thin thing to try to work with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a very powerful passage in the book to, uh, to really, you know, that, that sort of hits you between the eyes. Um, are there periods in, in history, whether, you know, the United States and Europe or, or the world at large, where sort of purpose-driven covenant, as it were, organizations were more prominent than they, they are today? You know, that's a great question, uh, Paul. And it's really interesting because I, one of the things that I've been actually watching recently on the History Channel mm -hmm. is uh, they've done these segments on uh, American industry. Mm -hmm. okay? And they've looked at different industries and worked with the transformational moments. Okay, going back to the start of the 20th century when we had this, yeah. this explosion of new industries and new business models, right? So you take something like the automobile industry or you take the food industry. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these industries are steel, right? Yeah. And you look at some of the great pioneers like Henry Ford and and Andrew Carnegie and, and uh, Rockefeller and, you know, and, and as I've watched these series, they're fascinating, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like a re-education in history, business history. Yeah. And you realize, even though they don't quite say it that way, you realize that all of these people had a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, if memory serves me right, you know, Andrew Carnegie at one time, you know, he had this massive steel empire and Rockefeller was trying to buy it from him. And <laughs> yeah. he eventually bought it for a price that maybe I'll get the number wrong, but in today's dollars would have been something like, you know, $400 billion or something. Um, but it was very interesting in that he knew that just naming a price wasn't going to be enough to get Carnegie to sell. Mm -hmm. His industry is his stake in the, in the in the business. So what he used was this appeal to higher purpose, and he said, "Look, you have always wanted to be the richest man in the world, so you could do the most for charity and your favorable my favorite charitable causes." Is we can't do that while you're still running these businesses. Yeah. So if you sell to me, you will be the richest man in the world. That's right, and you'll have none and of these other distractions. Yeah. You can do anything you want. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that's how he managed to convince them and, you know, all of the things that came later. Oh, yeah. From the Carnegie Endowment, right? Including yeah. the university. Right. Um, yeah. And so, or you look at Henry Ford and, you know, he was sued by the Dodge brothers because uh, he cut back on dividends so he could reduce the price of the car that uh -huh. he was selling. Uh -huh. These were two of his largest shareholders and, and oh, there was okay. this passage uh in lewis's book where you know he's on the stand and and the lawyers for the dodge brothers asked him he said you know so uh you know what is the purpose of the ford motor company if it is not to maximize shareholder wealth oh wow okay all the way back and, then <laughs> and he yeah. said he said well, it is to, you know, make as many cars as I can and make them available to as many people as I can, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, at the lowest price I can afford to sell them at and employ the largest army of men I can employ to make these cars or something to that mm-hmm. effect. Yeah. <laughs> and the lawyer was completely dumbfounded because <laughs> that is not the stated purpose of a corporation. Right. And uh, But it was really interesting that all of these people had a higher purpose in mind mm-hmm. in running their businesses. They weren't just running businesses. And, you know, as you know, you know, like Hershey's, for example, you know, on the food side, Mm-hmm. I mean, they played a really central role in feeding the troops during okay. the war, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, the automobile companies converting their factories to make aircrafts. And I always wondered why the big automakers had aircraft divisions. Like, what were they doing making aircraft engines? Right. Well, that happened during World War II. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because they needed to supply the army. Yeah. And so they were all driven by... You know, many of them were driven by this desire to somehow change society for the better mm-hmm. and to make a contribution, right? So they all had contribution goals. I'm not saying that they were not motivated by wealth and, and the yeah. usual goals. Yeah. Uh, I think those are great, and I think they're very important too. But the whole thesis of our research, the central premise has been that higher purpose is not charity. Higher, to pursue higher purpose doesn't mean you have to become a not-for-profit or a church. Okay, that's right. not what we have in mind. Charity yeah. is great, okay? Yeah. I highly respect it. This is different. Yeah. Higher purpose pursuit, what we're looking at is the intersection of higher purpose that transcends business goals and the usual business goals. All of these people pursuing purpose were extremely successful business mm-hmm. people. And in that sense, I actually agree with Jack Welch that, you know, if you're hanging on by your fingernails to succeed mm-hmm. in business where you don't know if you're going to be in business tomorrow, you can't yeah. pursue higher, you can't expect people to pursue higher purpose. If I don't know if I have a job tomorrow, right. forget about purpose. I need to feed my family. That's right? my purpose. Yeah. So you have to succeed in business. Yeah. You have to have a viable business Yeah. that succeeds, that is still driven by a sense of purpose. And this is what a lot of people often get wrong. When I start talking about purpose, they immediately jump to charity and, 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 uh, oh, you know, purpose-driven leader must be poor and a purpose-driven business can't have high profit margins. No, wrong. Purpose-driven businesses should have high profit margins. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because then they're going to have the resources to do the right thing. To pursue their higher purpose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. Yeah, you can't pursue purpose when you're financially distressed. You know, it's yeah. very hard. Yeah. Okay. Even though you know we have examples of organizations that were in deep financial distress who still decided to pursue purpose, mm-hmm. but that's not the norm that we want to promote. That you know that somehow pursuing purpose has to be in conflict with right. being successful in business right. and being profitable. Yeah, it shouldn't be. Yeah. Bill, was there? Uh, I, I know you had a few points you wanted to throw in at some point here, so let's make sure to yeah, get some of those. This fits in uh, right at this point. I was going to uh, my uh, my uh, thought uh, on on this um, before your most recent comments was that um, uh, there might be a couple of reasons why uh, um, uh, a purpose driven organization might have somewhat tougher times um, uh, generating that sense of purpose today. Part of it was that uh, 
Uh, number one would be not only uh, are corporations kind of um, uh, legally uh, formed for that sole purpose of um, uh, shareholder wealth mac maximization, et cetera. Uh, but nowadays, uh, it seems as though we're in for a, a time of, for many, many corporations, uh, just a tougher, competitive, globally mm -hmm. volatile uh, and a kind of um, hard to plan for mark, uh, marketplace arena. Uh, and so that uh, that um, that the quagmire at the bottom that, that prevents people from envisioning even higher purposes uh, kind of sticks people at that uh, at that level of uh, let's just survive. And then the, the second point was um, uh, perhaps this is a, a wrong a cultural observation and overgeneralization, but frankly, it seems to me that nowadays, um, you know, a lot of the communication of that purpose rests with the um, with the uh, rank and file employees, and um, especially if you haven't hired uh, these folks uh, right from the start, with a sense of you know, do these people share the purpose of the founding uh, uh, entrepreneur or president, et cetera? Uh, frankly, it seems as though so many folks are treating uh, their jobs and um, and the business world in a in a more utilitarian uh, way. It's hard to it's hard to guarantee that uh, they'll be good at uh, communicating and achieving mm -hmm. that sense of purpose. So those were those were my. Mm -hmm. I think it's exactly right and a wonderful goal and an uh, essential really to uh, cultural and social well being to have the sense of purpose. But those two things struck me as, uh, you know, uh, hurdles today. Yeah. No, so, so great points, Bill. So let me, let me actually address them. I may not address them in exactly the order in which you asked the questions. I'll take them as a group. I actually think that pursuing an authentic higher purpose is even more important in a more competitive environment because it allows you to set yourself apart from the rest of the crowd. You know, there's a very interesting statistic that Bob Chapman, who's the chairman and CEO of Barry Waymiller in Clayton, where I am, talks about, and that is that 88% of workers in the United States, employees of companies, express a need for purpose, but say they don't get it from work. Okay. And, you know, so much of our lives are spent at work, right, that the most natural place to get a sense of purpose is at work. And in fact, I did a survey last year uh, in the summer during the pandemic with a colleague of mine from WashU. And we did a survey of about 1,100 people, all of whom are working. Okay, median income is about fifty dollars or $60,000 uh, and fairly representative of the population in many respects. And... What we found is that people who worked for companies that had a written statement of higher purpose were more likely to have a written statement of higher purpose in their own personal lives, right? The spillover effect, right? right. Interestingly, we also found that they, if they believed that their company's leaders had an authentic sense of higher purpose, they also trusted them more to make better business decisions, okay? And so I'll give you two examples, right? So one of the examples is something we talk about in the book and in the HBR article is Jerry Anderson 
at DT Energy. Right? So this is uh, in Detroit, their utility. Uh, it's the old Detroit Edison, right? So it's a publicly traded company. And in 2008, so Jerry is kind of the lead CEO in our Harvard Business Review article. 2008, they're in deep trouble, okay? And so he said, Jerry said he called his top executives and said, you have 10 days to come up with a plan to save the company, okay? In the middle of the financial crisis, every company around them is falling into the arms of the government, right? And they came back in two days and they said, Jerry, too much money has walked out the door. These are the number of plants we need to close down. And these are how many people we need to fire. Okay. And Jerry said, he says, this was exactly the opposite of what my gut was telling me. And he says, I was faced with the biggest uh, professional decision of my life. And he decided to go in the opposite direction. And so he took, addressed, called a meeting, addressed the 10,000 employees of the company and said, this is the advice I've been given. I'm not going to take it. Instead, I want to tell you that laying off people and shutting down plants is absolutely the last lever we will pull to preserve the integrity of this company. What I want you to do though, because, but what I want you to do for me in exchange is I want you to give me all of your discretionary energy like you've never done before to help me save this company so we can then serve the communities that our purpose is to serve. We can't do that if we fail and go out of business. And he said over the next few quarters, his controller is bringing these reports. He says, every variance from plan is positive. And at one point he slammed his fist down on his desk and told his controller, check these numbers. There's a break in your system. There's something wrong. This can't be real. And the controller said, Jerry, I've checked it multiple times. This is exactly what's going on. And he said, the ask that I'd made of my people was actually working in a way that I could never have imagined. Because he says, when I did this, I went back and told my wife that I'm holding my breath because I have no idea if this is going to work. I think it's the right thing to do. I have no idea if it's going to work. Okay. And then, you know, in the book and so on, we discuss all of the, and he says, the reason why I didn't realize it is that it was happening in a very disaggregated manner in thousands of places all over the company where people were saving money. He gave us an example of a project that was budgeted for $30 million where they took the cost down to three. Would have never happened in the alternative reality without this purpose. And then he said, by 2010, he says, all the other companies around him had failed. The communities that were operating in were in pure misery. And they were flourishing, completely outperforming not only the S&P 500 and not only their own industry, but also the broad market, the S&P 500. And then in 2010, he said he had to redefine the purpose because that sense of urgency of saving the company was no longer there. Yeah. And so he repurposed the organization and said, look, we're flourishing, but the communities in which we're operating are not. And they redefined their purpose to make a contribution to the growth and vitality of the communities that they were in. And then, you know, remember the last time that we talked to him and he says, looking back at the 10 years since the journey began, 2018 or so, they had gone from being the bottom in safety to the top three, from the worst in union relations to the very best. 
stock price performance substantially outperforming every uh, index, you know, market index, their industry, and they're improved in every dimension. Not that they're perfect, right? Yeah. Not that they don't stray from their purpose. Right? Yeah. They're a real organization. They're not some synthetic, yeah. uh, you know, uh, organization created by some Pollyannish vision, right? But nonetheless, the purpose works. So purpose isn't static. You sometimes have to change it. But it does help you if it's authentic and people believe it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the key. Yeah. 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 Thank you. That's a good, good insight. I was thinking as you were, um, you know, in, in the back and forth here, um, there's there's another question that I was hoping to ask about how a striking feature of the book is how often you discuss, you know, becoming a learner, like various people from the CEO all the way down to the frontline employee becoming, like adopting a learner mindset, where at some point you actually explicitly mentioned the growth versus static mindset of Carol Dweck. Um, how did that come to play? I mean, could you maybe speak a few more words on how that came to play such a part? Because I, you know, I think it parallels with what Bill was saying about, you know, well, we haven't necessarily hired people who are going to share our purpose, but sometimes people can learn. No, absolutely. In fact, in all of these, I, I wanted to address that, that, you know, it's very interesting because the commitment to higher purpose is not a bottom-up thing. It's a top-down thing. You know, the CEO, the leadership has to first buy into it because they control a lot of the levers mm-hmm. that are going to make it authentic or not. Okay. And, but once you do that, then you have to cascade it down the organization. And that's the learning part. And that addresses, Bill, your point that when I've joined the organization, I didn't sign on to this purpose, it was adopted after the fact. And now I have to sign on to it. But just because the organization adopts a purpose, you know, if I'm a mid-level manager, I have no idea what that means for me. How does it change my job? You have to teach people that. They have to learn that, yeah. both through intervention and through self-reflection. And so when we work with companies, we actually go through, it's hard work, but we go through that process layer by layer, right? And where they have to think about, okay, this is the organization's purpose. What does it mean for me? Mm-hmm. How does it change my job? What is my purpose at my level? And what am I going to do the next three months, six months, year differently, right? So one of the exercises we ask people to do is bring us a critical decision that you made in the past. How would you make it differently today? Because you have a purpose. Yeah. Why would you make it differently? Right? And reflect on it because that is how you learn, Right. So one of the things that research and learning says is that we don't learn when somebody conveys information or knowledge to us. We learn when we reflect on it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and that's the active part of the learning. Listening and absorbing is the passive part. So you have to make people active participants in that learning process because then they figure out what it means at their level. Right. What does it mean for my job? How am I going to do it, do it differently? Yeah. I say the same thing to friends of mine who, you know, when they, when I've talked to them about this and I say, you know, do you have a personal statement of purpose? Right. I mean, I have a statement of purpose for my personal life. I have a statement of purpose for my professional life. And I said, do you have one? Right. And I said, I'll work on it, you know, when I have the time. Right. <laughs> and and uh, time is always a big challenge. Right. So, yeah. 
Yeah. And then eventually, you know, if, if I bug them enough, they'll, uh, I said, did you do it? Oh, no, 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 I'll get to it. And, and then I'll get something say, oh, yeah, I finally did it. What do you think? And I said, it doesn't matter what I think. Mm-hmm. I said, the vision that comes to my mind is Stacy Tank, who used to work at Heineken. And she said, you know, my personal, not my professional statement, my personal statement of purpose was I want to set your hair on fire in every interaction that I have. Okay. That's my personal statement of purpose, right? Okay. All right. Now, I said, I take that to mean, I said, does your personal statement of purpose set your own hair on fire? Because if it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I say, right? Right. And what that means is it's got to get you all fired up, right? It's got to yeah. make you feel like your own life is so exciting and valuable. And every day is, is something you look forward to, you mm-hmm. know, living that purpose. And, and then, you know, if you can bring the same sort of passion to your professional statement of purpose, you can imagine how much more effective you're going to be on the job. And then if you can multiply that by 10,000 employees, mm-hmm. you can begin to see the kinds of things that Jerry Anderson saw at DT Energy that he never imagined he would see. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Getting a $30 million project done for $3 million, that, exactly. that sets somebody's head on fire right there. Exactly. So, gosh. Wow. I mean, that's a fascinating, like the, the whole, I mean... That, that whole drama of bringing it down, you know, bringing purpose down to the middle manager, to the frontline employee and letting everybody see their own. I mean, this is a Catholic podcast. And so from the, the point of view of, of Catholic social teaching and Catholic outlook on things, I mean, there's the notion of subsidiarity, that there's a right level of responsibility for different, um, you know, right level of responsibility, right level of decision making. And that it really is a usurpation for people above to, you know, engage in too much attempting to control and, and direct um, it just, it, it, it's, it's contrary to human flourishing. And this, mm-hmm. and this book is just crammed with examples of, of that playing out, honestly. Um, and, and, and people turning from, you know, that conventional mindset of control to that, to that mindset of, of responsibility and growth. So that's, that's, that's been beautiful. What uh, uh, is this, does this continue to be an active area of research for you and for Bob for that matter? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So we are, uh, you know, Bob and I still have our paper. My colleague Stuart Bunderson and I wrote a paper on, you know, we took our survey results and then we said, what does this imply for higher purpose in banking? And what are the implications Mm -hmm. for things like financial stability? That paper is actually coming out sometime soon in the Journal of Banking and Finance. Uh, there's a special issue that that uh, we're publishing that paper in. Uh, yeah, so we're continuing to uh, to work with organizations and do research in this and learn more. And we're in the very early planning stages. We did a conference back in 2019. It was end October, early November on higher purpose. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Paul, but we brought 75 CEOs of organizations. It was by invitation only, and it was a one-day conference on Washington campus. And we had a panel of speakers during the day, you know, academic researchers, consultants, mm-hmm. CEOs like Jerry Anderson would undertake yeah. the journey themselves, sharing their insights, and then QA with the audience and so on. Very powerful conference. 
And so we want to do that again. Mm-hmm. We'll do it in, uh, you know, next year when we, yeah. the university has lifted all of its <laughs> right. restrictions. On 22, and we're hopefully really on our way back yeah. to whatever the new normal will be. Right. So, you know, we're probably going to do it sometime in March. So we're in the early planning stages of that. So then out of that, we hope to actually use that conference as also a platform to do some more research. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that we're engaged in uh, all the time. And, I, you know, it's we just redesigned the executive MBA program uh, to emphasize this more. So next month, actually, I'll be, I'm right now in Colorado, but next month I'll be, you know, I'll go back to St. Louis because we have Stuart Munderson and I do, are doing like a one and a half day session where early in the program, almost like the orientation part, we'll be talking about personal and, and organizational higher purpose. And then they'll follow that all along. And the goal is by the time they end the executive MBA program, they're fully fleshed out their personal statement of purpose. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they get coaching along the way and stuff like that. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not so, just throwing so them in. So we teach this as well. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. So continuing to, to work with the business community and get the ideas further out there. Yeah. Bill, is there anything else you wanted to put in? Well, uh, you're, you're mentioning um, the role that the business school can play mm-hmm. and I'm seeing how uh, how uh, it really it, it, it does it take a village does it take a country does it take a, a sense of uh, community and common good for uh, all of this to kind of percolate into the broader business culture and even into the culture itself yeah I think you know I I, I must say but I mean there are a couple of uh, caveats that I also have Um so I think, you know, I mean, I see schools like HBS and, you know, our school in Michigan and others where there are people, individual faculty who have a passion for working on this. And I think as a result of that, it's going to permeate business education more broadly. Mm-hmm. And it's already part of the business community consciousness. So I think those are all positive steps. Uh, I think the one thing that I, and this is more personal than anything else, that I really desperately want to avoid is having any political undertones. So I want to keep this apolitical because I find politics personally distasteful. (laughs) I find them divisive. And so I would like, you know, for this higher purpose notion to be inclusive, I think it has to be apolitical. And, yeah. and I think the more inclusive it is, the better off we are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I want to keep it apolitical. And I think that is not easy to do because I think the business community, you know, is getting pressured from a lot of different directions. Yeah. And so, you know, they sometimes pay lip service to certain causes yeah. that might, you know, can have two adverse consequences. One is, it's kind of an escape from pursuing authentic higher purpose right? because you paid lip service to your favorite social causes. And that lets me off the hook. You know, I've yeah. checked that box, right? Right. Right. Or that yeah. somehow the notion of purpose begins to get commingled with politically charged issues. 
Yeah. And then it turns off a lot of people who don't subscribe to that particular political philosophy. Yeah. It becomes a wedge with so the organization. You know, I want to keep this as far away from yeah. politics as we possibly can, because when I look at in my own research, the higher purpose statements of a lot of the organizations that we've studied in our research, companies that I've worked with, there's mm-hmm. absolutely no reason to have any sort of political undertones. Right. <laughs> you, know, you can, right. you know, this is like, this, you know, this should appeal to anyone regardless of their political stripes yeah. or information. The, so, the examples that work don't need that element. I'm sorry? The examples that work just don't need that element. No, exactly. You don't need that, you know. Yeah. So, you know, if we can keep this at sort of the intersection of, you know, making a contribution to the social good and succeeding in business, right? Yeah. And we need both. Yeah. Yeah, and we have, and it's good to have an area where we can see common ground in a society that's trying to trying to convince itself that we don't have common ground with one another. Right. Wow. Well, that's um, this is this has been a great conversation. I really, uh, uh, really, really appreciate the chance to get, talk to you about the subject because this was this was really. I mean, I, again, I'd recommend any of our listeners to pick up the economics of higher purpose. And to look into this, you know, for themselves and for their own role in whatever organization they might be in. Is there anything else that you could recommend to our listeners who are who are interested in the subject? Well, I think you know um, we um, there are articles being written on this all the time. I think you know Harvard Business Review had a special issue on higher purpose, where okay. they collected all of the articles that they published on it. I think it came out in 2020. I think that's a good read. Okay. Yeah. Eight or ten articles on purpose. There's a lot of good sources. There's a lot of good work that's being done on this. Mm-hmm. So you know, I would just recommend staying in touch with those things because I really think that people don't need to reinvent the wheel. I think we can learn from yeah. what other organizations have done. Yeah. And adapt it to our own setting. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, your your book and and your our conversation have brought up you know everything from Henry Ford to DT Energy to KPMG to you know all, right. all over the map all over the map people call people in call centers. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's pretty amazing. So, well, um, well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, we, we really appreciate you making the time. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Doctor. All the best. Fine. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.